let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to hear from his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the God who speaks and your word is truth. Your word brings life. Your word is food for our soul. So Father, please uh, help us all now to hear uh, your word. Father, please give us ears that hear, humble hearts that long to trust you. And Father, please help me in my weakness to speak this word clearly, truthfully, boldly, as I should, so that you would be glorified uh, in the preaching and hearing of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last year I was picking up my sister from the airport. Uh, and I don't know about you, but uh, it's not my favourite thing to do. It's always busy, the freeway's usually packed, there's those attendants that kind of rush you along, and if you want to park there, well, you may as well just sell your car first so you can afford it. Uh, I get there 6am, 30 minutes after her flight was scheduled to arrive. Uh, I called, nothing. I drove around and around, got waved on multiple times, I called again, nothing. I checked the status of the flight, it had landed, all was good. One hour passes and I'm starting to get frustrated, to say the least. Two hours pass, two visits to Macca's later, and it's fair to say I'm ropeable, that even if she was to walk out of the airport right now, it wouldn't really be a welcome back kind of greeting that she'd receive. So I call my parents to double check that the information is correct, to hear those words that almost broke me. I thought her flight was landing tomorrow. I can tell you that the, uh, the trip home in peak hour was pretty miserable. Not even a third trip to Macca's could fix it. Now, I think most of us can probably uh, think back or remember a time where we have been frustrated or angry, uh, or angry related to time, whether it's time we've wasted, uh, it's uh, stress related to time when we've been late for work, we've slept in or missed that train. Or I'm, uh, I'm sure lots of us can think of times where people around us haven't appreciated what time it is. Just on Friday night after getting home from youth group and putting my son to sleep, I went to bed only to be kept awake by the sound of music at a party down the road. Or for me especially, it's that garbage truck at 6am that seems to last for an eternity outside my window. And our lives revolve around time. It's when we eat, we sleep, we holiday, when we go to work. Everything revolves around time. It's why we can download literally thousands of calendar or scheduling apps for our phones to help us with planning and time management. And we are busy people. We hate to waste time. And the three sections in James 4.13 through to 5.12 are all connected by a reference of time. It's how we should live in the time that we have. And that is also in light of what will come in the future. Christians need to understand the time we live in rightly so we can then live accordingly. This passage is both an encouragement and a warning. And verse 13, James begins with those of us who make plans. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. James says, listen up. And he speaks to the self-confident planners, especially those in regard to business ventures. And the plans he talks about in verse 13 would have been really familiar to his audience. 
Travelling merchants would go from city to city to buy and sell products. Their success relied on their ability to travel, to negotiate, to purchase goods and then sell them for profit. These are normal, everyday, common plans. And that's the point. Verse 13 is not seeking to have a go at the entrepreneurs among us, the forward thinkers or those trying to make some money. He addresses what is common and normal, the plans that most of us make. And we are planners, aren't we? Most of us, as Christmas approaches, have probably already made plans about what's going to happen with family, holidays, New Year's Eve and so on. Most of you have probably even got plans about what you're going to do tonight. And the issue that James wants to address is not making plans, but what the plans of verse 13 reveal about the person making them. That is, they often, the the plans in verse 13 and actually our own plans, often reflect a complete misunderstanding and ignorance of reality. Verse 14, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You and I have no control over tomorrow. Yet so often the plans that we make presume that we do. But James says, why? You don't know what will happen tomorrow. And it's true. How often have you used the phrase, I wasn't planning on that happening? I'm pretty sure I've said it every time my day's been railroaded because of sitting in traffic because of a huge crash or railroaded by the hours on the phone after having a crash. Uh, Or it's a, a visit to emergency that takes hours. James's question reflects what Proverbs uh, 27 states, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. But not only do our, uh, our daily planning often reflect an ignorance of reality, it also reflects an overinflated view of ourselves. Verse 4 continues, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. When we make plans, whether big or small, so often they represent a complete failure to recognise our lack of control over what tomorrow brings, or even the very fact that we might not be here tomorrow. Now, that probably seems a little sombre, a little grim, doesn't it? It's in our human nature to try and deny or forget our fragility and our mortality. But it's reality. Psalm 39. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth, without knowing whose it will finally be. Biographies seem to be the very in thing at the moment. You can't be a retired sports star or a washed up celebrity without one, it seems. But it's the titles of biographies that always get me. They just represent a desperate attempt to presume that our lives are important and significant for other people. But James says, if you were to write a biography, here is the title. Missed. Here today, but maybe not tomorrow. Our lives are short and fleeting. Whether it's an illness or a car accident, there is any number of things that can end our lives in a moment. But James isn't just saying that our planning is unrealistic. It's actually a desire to be 
God. Verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. The plans of verse 13 and so often our own planning presumes that we know and control what will happen tomorrow. But actually only God does. And so we see the issue is not making plans, but a refusal to centre our lives on God and humbly acknowledge the reality that God alone rules. That's why James doesn't say, don't make plans. He says, rather, put our plans, like all of our lives, under God's authority. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live or do this or that. Our planning is to be grounded in the reality that God alone rules history and his will alone happens. Proverbs 16 verse 9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. There is nothing in our lives outside of God's control or care. This is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. God is sovereign. He rules. He controls all things, whether big things like kings and kingdoms, down to the random, seemingly mundane events of our lives. And the book of Ruth is the perfect example of that. And Christians especially know how true this is. God has worked sovereignly throughout human history, even through the evil actions of those who reject him, to bring about his purposes in the world. We know this. We see it most gloriously on the cross as God worked to bring salvation through the crucified Jesus. So for a Christian then to plan without any reference to God is not only to deny reality, but it's just to be like the rest of the world. It's arrogant boasting and it's evil. So what do your plans say about you? Are your plans always governed by Lord willing? Now, James, of course, is not saying that the simple solution is just to throw those words on the end of every sentence and, of course, you'll be better. God has no interest in mere lip service. The issue in James, as always, is the heart. If our planning is no different from those around us who don't know Jesus, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, what does it say to them about us? And so what are your plans saying about you? Do you view your whole life under the sovereign rule of God? Do you submit your plans to God's control because you acknowledge he rules and you don't? And although James isn't demanding that we legalistically tack on if the Lord wills at the end of every sentence, I actually think it's really helpful. We should say, Lord willing, with our plans, even, perhaps especially, when we're speaking to those who don't know Jesus. Arrogant planning that presumes uh, health and wealth comes very naturally to us because we live in a comfortable and stable country. And you know that, right? Because you already make plans all the time without even thinking about God. But to say, Lord willing, with your plans, not only models faith in Jesus to those around you, but grounds you in reality every day that God alone rules 
and that is a good thing. But Christian planning is not different simply in how we plan, but in what we plan. Verse 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Last week in James chapter 4, verse 5, we saw that God jealously longs for all of who we are to be devoted to him. He wants a people undivided in loyalty, devotion and obedience. And by telling us to put our planning of under the banner of Lord willing, James, I think, is actually showing us how do you do that? We know the good that we ought to do. That is, God has spoken to us in his word, telling us how to live the kind of people he wants us to be. We know the good we should do. But if we then don't do it, that is sinful. So then to say Lord willing is not simply to accept God alone is in control. To say Lord willing is to say that what I do every day is governed by the desire to do what God says and what is pleasing to him. And when you think about it, that is really helpful. It gets us thinking about what we're choosing to do with our time and why. It puts pleasing Jesus at the forefront of our minds in all we do. If what God wills is central to our speech and attitude in planning, do you think we'll be able to say, Lord willing, I'll go to that party tomorrow night, when we know we're going to struggle there with our drunkenness? Will we plan to see that movie tomorrow night, Lord willing? knowing that it's going to confront and challenge our lust? Will I, Lord willing, spend a day shopping tomorrow knowing that it's just going to feed my greed? So, Lord willing, whether speech or attitude, is it reflected in your planning? I think this is actually really the daily and practical application of praying, your will be done that Jesus taught us to in Matthew 6. So is your planning Christian? Now, for some of us, right, we're so busy that planning is not a big feature of our life. And so I think perhaps the challenge for some of us tonight is are you actually so busy that you're not planning to do what God wills? Do you actually need to change your priority so that all you do is under the banner of Lord willing? Is God central to how you plan and what you plan, big picture and small? Now, some of us might be thinking, I don't really see what the big deal is. I've been making plans my whole life without saying or even thinking, Lord willing, and it seems to work out fine. In fact, there's probably a billion people doing it right now and everything seems good for them. In fact, they seem happier and freer without that kind of overarching burden of Lord willing. And so as James calls us as Christians to live every day in light of God's will, he turns in chapter 5 to remind and warn his readers that judgment will come on those who refuse to have God-centered lives. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. The repetition there of now listen shows, I think, that James has got a new specific group in mind and they are the rich. 
But who are they? Well, we're told already in James, back in chapter 2, that the rich are exploiting Christians by dragging them into court and they're persecuting believers as they blaspheme the name of Christ. And I think that's the reference in verse 6 of this chapter as well. So the rich that James is addressing here, I'm pretty sure they're unbelievers. And that especially seems to be the case because he doesn't call them to repent or change or be Christian. The message for them is only judgment. Weep and wail. It's the language of Old Testament prophets as they announce God's judgment on sin. But that raises the question, doesn't it? Why address unbelievers in a letter for Christians? They'll probably never even hear the warning, right? Well, it could be that it seems from James chapter 2 that some unbelieving rich were coming to church because they were playing favourites with the rich and the poor as they came in. Uh, And so that's possible. But although it might seem strange to us, addressing unbelievers is actually common for Old Testament prophets as they announce God's judgment on those who were oppressing God's people. There's a reference in your handout from Ezekiel 29. That's one example. And the point wasn't necessarily for those people or nation to hear it and to be afraid, but to do two very important things for God's people. Firstly, by announcing judgment on those oppressing them, it gave comfort to them that God knew about their suffering and would bring justice for them. God is never indifferent to evil or uncaring about the affliction of his people. He will act and he will judge. And so we and James's readers can be assured that the wicked will never get away with their actions. We don't need to despair. We don't need to take revenge. We don't even need to fear them. God will judge. But secondly, and I think this is probably the central concern for James here, that by announcing judgment on those oppressing them, it was a warning to God's people not to envy desire or copy their worldly lifestyle. We see a great example of this in Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah announces God's certain imminent judgment on Babylon, where, of course, Babylon, God's people, are currently living there in exile. And as he announces God's judgment on Babylon, he then says to God's people in verse 8, you must flee Babylon or suffer with them. Babylon will meet God's judgment, but God's people must not become comfortable or conform to their lifestyle, for that would be then to suffer the same judgment as them. And Jeremiah 50 is used exactly this way in Revelation 18. And remember that this has been the central concern of James's letter. His readers are being drawn into worldliness, And so as he announces God's certain certain judgment and misery on these rich unbelievers, he is warning us and them that believers must not be attracted to their lifestyle, no matter how glorious and glamorous it may seem. Because the judgment on the rich here is not simply because they are rich. The Bible is not anti-wealth. It's what they do with their wealth. And so as James lays down the evidence of what, uh, of what they're doing in verses 2 to 6, it then serves as a warning for us to make sure we aren't doing likewise. 
So, verse 6, they are oppressing others. They are condemning and murdering the innocent one who is not opposing you. Uh, Innocent is probably more literally righteous, as the ESV translates it, and it's actually a reference to Christians. They are murdering Christians, probably a reference to the rich exploiting others through a legal system where they take their land, which deprives them of the very ability to keep living. They are abusing the vulnerable. Now, this surely would have hit home to James's readers, right? Because they don't treat each other very well. It's been a central concern of the letter. Secondly, verse 5, they are selfish as they live only for their own luxury and pleasure. Thirdly, verse 4, they mistreat their workers by not paying them properly. This would, like verse 6, threaten the very life of a worker who would rely on daily pay to provide for themselves and their family. So the rich here are essentially worldliness personified. They're condemned for their selfishness. They live only for themselves and even to the point of exploiting the vulnerable among them. But God knows and he judges. Verse 4. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. God is the Lord Almighty, better translated, Lord of hosts. It's a picture of God leading an army, a mighty army, into battle as he brings judgment. All evil actions, all worldly selfishness that rejects God is seen and known by the holy, just God who judges. And we have to picture how confronting these indictments against the rich would have been for James's readers. James has exposed them for doing pretty much the exact same thing. He's confronted their worldly, two-faced Christianity, their adultery with the world. And here he's saying to them, to envy and imitate the world around you is just to invite God's judgment. But perhaps the most confronting of the indictments against the rich for us comes in verses 2 to 3, as he condemns their hoarding of wealth. Your wealth is rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. James gives us a a picture of large sums of money gold and silver, corroding and testifying against the rich and eating their flesh like fire. Now, the image might be uh, a little bit confusing to us, especially given it seems that gold and silver don't corrode. From the world's perspective, they are incorruptible. But when standing before God in judgment, their wealth has essentially rusted right through because it's worthless. More than that, it's actually evidence against them. Uh, The wealth is given by God to sustain human life. And so this wealth that is corroding, that is, it's been unused and is rotting, is evidence of their failure to use their money for good. But secondly, their hoarded wealth shows that they've actually just invested in this world. Uh, The word hoarded is literally to lay up treasure. They have done the very thing that Jesus warned against. 
Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So not only is their wealth gained at the expense of others, and not only is it used for their own luxury and greed, their wealth has become for them a false source of security for their future. But when judgment comes, their wealth will be nothing else but fuel for the fire. But the foolishness of their wealth is not just about what is coming to them. Verse 4, James says they've hoarded wealth in the last days. Verse 5, they've fattened themselves in the day of slaughter. The rich will face certain judgment because they haven't taken seriously the time that they live in. The last days is a reference between Jesus' ascension and when he will come, his second coming. It's now. We live in the last days, which means that in God's plan and timing, there is one certain future thing happening, the return of Jesus and judgment. The day of slaughter in verse 5 is also an Old Testament reference to God's judgment. But in the time that God has given them to prepare for that day, they have merely fattened themselves up. The image is of a cow eating as much as it can, literally, while it's walking into the abattoir. And we see that there's a deliberate contrast going on here. In James 4, 13 to 17, he called Christians to submit and seek God's will in every day of every aspect of their lives which is now being contrasted in 5, 1 to 7 with a life that completely omits God altogether. And so these rich are just like that fool that we read about in Luke 12 who hoarded wealth for his future while ignoring both his own mortality and God's certain judgment. And so the point for Christians is clear. Don't fear them. God will judge them, but don't copy or envy them either. This whole section, I think, is actually amazingly similar to Psalm 73, and you can read it later. And it is so easy for us, I think, to see the self-indulgent lives of those around us who flourish, who don't feel guilty for their sin at all. And we are jealous our attitude towards and sorry our attitude towards and our use of wealth is often a pretty clear indicator of how we are going in 1 Timothy Paul says those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs now, the point, of course, is not that Christians can't save money, but there is always a challenge for us to make sure that our saving has not become a source of false security for the future. But also, we must be serious with the time that we live in. So how are you using your money? Are you saving and why? 
And perhaps most commonly and confrontingly, are we saving and hoarding money at the expense of being generous and caring for others? And yet, while the wicked will certainly be judged by God, the suffering of God's people is still real and hard in this life. And so having assured them of God's impending judgment, James calls believers in verses 7 to 12 to wait patiently for Jesus to come. Verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. And then James gives an example. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. Now, waiting for rain would be a powerful illustration for James's original readers, who were mostly farmers. All of life revolved around rain and the crops that came for these agrarian people. Rain and harvest are almost synonymous with life itself, the ability to eat and earn an income and provide for your family depended on it. But more than that, the language of autumn and spring rains or early and late uh, is an Old Testament reference for trusting in God's faithfulness. Just one example in Deuteronomy 11. God promises to send the autumn and spring rain so that his people will flourish and the land will produce all they need. So to wait patiently for Christ to come then is an expression of our trust that God is faithful and that he will certainly come. No matter how much pressure gets put on Christians, no matter how hard things get, no matter who's in government, whether state or country, we don't despair, we don't take revenge, and we don't fear the world that hates Jesus. We wait. But waiting is not passive as if the epitome of Christianity is looking out the window for Jesus to come. Patience is active. It's doing what God has called us to do. James makes this point by saying, look at the prophets. In verse 10, the point is not to look at the prophets because they suffered, but while they suffered, they continued to speak God's word. Suffering is the common experience of God's people throughout history. Consider the prophets like Jeremiah. He was betrayed by his own family. He was beaten up. He was imprisoned. He was threatened by the king. And then to top it off, he got put in a cistern. But he kept speaking God's word. And James says, verse 11, that we count Jeremiah and the prophets blessed. This is what Jesus promised in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. To be blessed here is not to be happy, but to have God's approval. And a, a willingness to suffer for belonging to Jesus is to be blessed. For it is a clear sign that you are waiting patiently. That you are living in light of Jesus' certain return because he has promised that your reward will be great on that day. But James's second example of Job might surprise us. But Job is a very deliberate and specific example for James's readers. Job lost family, wealth, and health. 
for his faithfulness to God. A familiar experience for James's readers. And Job shows us that waiting patiently isn't passive. Job wrestled with God. He asked questions. He turned to God. He struggled. But he never gave up his confidence in God and especially turned to God in his suffering. But the point is not simply look at Job. The point is look at how the story ends. You have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The hero of Job's story isn't Job, it's God. God who reversed all of Job's suffering because he is full of compassion and mercy. And he's saying that what Job experienced, that great reversal, is certainly what believers will experience when Jesus returns. God is faithful. We can trust him and we must patiently wait for Jesus to come. But because waiting isn't passive, James lays out that it will be seen in faithfulness. Verse 8, he says, You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Uh, To stand firm is literally to establish your hearts. It's a call to all-out devotion and loyalty. It's confidence in Jesus. It's setting your heart on living his way, even in the face of opposition. And although the prophets are broad examples of that, James gets very specific what they need to be doing in verses 9 and 12. In those verses, he gives two commands, and both of them have a warning. The first in verse 9 is don't grumble against each other. Now, it might seem like a bit of a random change of subject, but in James we've seen that how quickly they are as believers to turn on each other. And think about it, when we suffer, when we're frustrated, we do this, don't we? We compare ourselves to the situation of others. Why does their life seem so much easier than mine? Why has God provided for them but not me? And it is true, isn't it, that when we get angry or frustrated, we often turn on those who are closest to us. But God takes it seriously. James warns, don't do it or you will be judged. The life together of believers is meant to sustain and encourage Christian perseverance. We are gifts from God to each other. So then to grumble and turn on each other is not only to reject God's good gift, but to invoke his judgment. Waiting patiently will mean not grumbling, but secondly, it will mean honesty, verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. This is pretty much identical to what Jesus taught in Matthew 5. Swearing oaths we saw there was being used as a kind of way to be inconsistent. The idea was that if you swore by something like the temple, you didn't have to do it. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, then you did have to do it. It was just a clever way to be an inconsistent hypocrite. But Jesus' people shouldn't need that at all. We are to be consistent all the time honest. 
And so James is saying that waiting patiently for Jesus to return is not simply to be assured that he will judge sinners when he comes, but a warning to examine your own life. Will he find you faithful when he comes in every aspect of your life? Because he is coming and coming soon. James makes that clear. Verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. But would you be confident to let Jesus in? Verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. Our whole lives, every day, should be lived in the constant awareness that Jesus' return is imminent. His coming is always near. Jesus himself said, Mark 13, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. That's talking about his own return. Whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows at dawn, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Or the final book of the Bible, Revelation, finishes with the words of Jesus in chapter 2, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. To which John, the author of Revelation, adds his own words, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. God's people should live every day with an eye on the return of Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. So what are your plans, your view of the future, your use and attitude about wealth, your daily life? What is it saying about you? Are you taking seriously the time we live in and are prepared for Jesus to return? Are the words, come, Lord Jesus, regularly in your prayers as you look forward to his glorious and certain return? For though he delays, he will certainly come, and he will come as just judge. Are you ready? Are you living in light of eternity by submitting every day to God's will? by knowing that judgment of the wicked is coming when he returns and by giving yourself wholeheartedly to the faith he has called you to as you patiently wait. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we confess that so often in our planning, our use of money, our daily conduct, we have often forgotten you completely. We have not been faithful. We have not taken seriously the time we live in and have not lived in light of eternity. Father, please help us tonight to hear, trust and obey your word. To be people who live looking for Jesus to come, whose joy it is to say, Lord willing, as we wait for our Lord to return. So, Father, we pray, trusting and waiting for him, and we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.